Is it well or unwell with you as the year comes to an end? Is it well or unwell with you? By God's grace, I have a strong sense of smell. So I was pouring myself a drink one night, and as I stood by the sink to make a drink, I smelt cockroach. And uh, you know, cockroach smell, that blast smell, that distasteful, disgusting thing that makes you want to throw up, right? So I looked down, and sure enough, there was a cockroach. So immediately I got down, got my slippers, and tried to smack it. Guess what? As I tried to smack it, out came another one. Then another one. Then another one. It was like a horror movie. <laughs> so I swatted half of them. I went to get the insecticide, and I pressed so hard and so long on the insecticide, I probably sprayed enough to kill a human being. Right? And the rest died. And that was a close shave. The next day, we called the pest control. They came and they said, you got a cockroach infestation. You got a cockroach outbreak. Cockroaches of any shape and size, the black round ones, the big long ones that can fly, you got them in your sewage system. If anything jolts me to remember that life is not ideal, if anything jolts me to remember that the world that we live in is not perfect, cockroaches will rank very high, right up there for me. So I do not know about you. What about you? What are some reminders? What are some evidences? What are some things that will jolt you to tell you that life is not well? What jolts you to think that we are not the way God designed us? That life is not going according to plan? Be besides the, the obvious, the obvious creepy crawlies, like lizards, insects, frogs, and snakes. What are the things that jolt you to think that we live in a fallen world and we are broken people? We live in a fallen world and we are broken people. For some, it may be when sickness crashes in and sickness crashes all our healthy plans. For some, it may be the loss of a job, a collapse of a business, that derails our financial security. For some, what might jolt us, may be a marriage breakdown or family breakup that destroys our dreams of happiness. Well, this year, being the unprecedented COVID-19 year, I don't think we need any reminders. I don't think we need anything to jolt us. I don't think we need any evidences, any more proofs that we live in a fallen world and we are sinful people. But as we come to that conclusion, whatever jolts you to tell us, this is not the way God designed us to live. This is not who we are. Yet every year, we come to December 31st all around the world, and we still, greet each, we still do a quite silly thing, and the silly thing is we greet each other, Happy New Year! Why do we do that? Because every year, there is no real or permanent newness of life. It's going to be a repetition of that sinfulness, a repetition of our fallenness, a repetition of our sicknesses, a repetition of all the things that we suffer because we live outside God's presence and outside God's Word. So we've quoted this many times. It's Einstein. I hope it is. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again 
and expecting different results. So year after year, we greet each other Happy New Year when we know deep in our hearts it's not going to be happy in any shape and form permanently. So why do we do this? Maybe it's because we are so desperate for newness. So no matter how silly, no matter how useless, no matter how insane, we wish one another a happy new year. If there was one person in the whole of human history who is qualified to declare a truly new beginning, a truly new year, a truly new era, it would be John the Baptist. No one else in human history can hold a candle to him. Why? Because John the Baptist is the forerunner, he is the broadcaster, he is the announcer of the coming of Jesus into the world. And the coming of Jesus into the world is what offers you and me true and permanent newness of life with God and with one another. That is why what we just read from Luke chapter 3 is a pivotal passage. There is no one more qualified to declare to us permanent and true newness of life. And here is where we get started. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. Are you lost? You say, couldn't have chosen a more difficult passage to end the year, right? During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so a possible outline to follow this on the theme of wellness is firstly our human wellness, which is our fake wellness. And that will be followed by our true wellness, our true unwellness, and then it is truly well when Jesus happens to us. The writer of this is a doctor named Luke. That's why this gospel is called Luke. It's Luke's gospel. And being a doctor, any doctors here, I'm going to say something in commendation of you. Being a doctor, you must have some intelligence, at least some. You must be very meticulous down to the detail of understanding the human anatomy and all the medicines that will treat the human body when it's sick. Luke, the doctor, is meticulous. He's got a very sharp mind, but beyond being good about the human body anatomy, he is, at the same time, he transfers this over to become an investigative journalist. In what sense? He's going to check out this story about this man called Jesus. To check out where he lived, to check out where he was born, to check out whether he's authentic, and this is his conclusion as he writes 24 chapters of this gospel. His thorough investigation of the history behind God's story of salvation. And here in chapter 3, God's story of salvation here in the story of Jesus revolves around five rulers. Emperor Tiberius, who ruled the mighty Roman Empire. So he's the Caesar. To Pontius Pilate, who was smaller, it gets smaller and smaller, who was governor of the province of Judea. To Herod the Tetrarch, to his brother Philip the Tetrarch, and Licinius, who ruled over smaller portions. 
And so you've got five political rulers, five economic rulers, five military rulers, and then you've got Annas and you've got Caiaphas, who were the high priests of that time, and in, one, in that sense, they were not reliable high priests, corrupt high priests. When you put it all together, the first one or two verses, five political, economic, military powers plus two religious powers, that's called a dream team in the Roman Empire. And why is that a dream team? Because our human idea of wellness, our human idea of prosperity and peace is when political, economic and military power is backed by the gods. And that's Roman peace. Even the two priests here may, may not be their gods. So outwardly, as you look at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, everything looked well. The powers that be who control the wellness, the prosperity and the peace of the entire Roman Empire, the greatest Western civilization, the greatest Western Empire at that time. And the word, the laws and the decrees of these emperors, of these governors, of these tetrarchs would carry weight. Didn't we just see that in Luke chapter 2 last week? Remember the census that was passed? A population census that forced Joseph and Mary from the familiarity of Nazareth to go to the unfamiliarity of Bethlehem to give birth. To who? To their first child. How many of you, in giving birth to your first child, find the most unfamiliar place to go to? You're out of your mind. How on earth did they end up there? Because the emperor issued a decree for a population census. Emperor's words, governor's words, tetrarch's words carry weight. Their words, their laws and their decree make us do things that we may not want to do. And so the census counts population, collects taxes to continue Roman power over others. Into this man-made curated world of Roman peace comes a, into this man-made world of Roman peace comes a nobody, a small fry, a calafé called John the Baptist. And he comes to bring the word of God. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And you know the point that's being made with this verse is a very important one. Whenever God sent his prophets from the Old Testament to the New, and John would be that final one before Jesus, his prophets, that prophetic word, would come to challenge kings and rulers, all the way from Nebuchadnezzar to here. And so God's prophetic word comes through a nobody, a small fry, a calafé, somebody forgettable, and he brings a word that will challenge the emperor. That will challenge the empire because the king he's announcing will be greater than Caesar. That's the point of verse 1 and 2. It brings about the rightful word of God and the rightful authority, telling you that the five rulers and the two religious rulers are all fake authorities. That the number one word and the number one authority is going to come, and that's very important. And so the background to this is Isaiah 40. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Why? As it is written, sorry, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level places, and all flesh, what is this for? For make straight the paths, so that all flesh, Jews and Gentiles, every race of men, and at that time there were only two races of men, you're either Jew or you're Gentile, you're Jew or non-Jew, will see the salvation of God. So when you start to unpack the language, from mountains and hills shall be made low, mountains and hills, mountains and hills are symbol of what? Symbols of power, symbols of stability, symbols of pride and arrogance humble. And then the humble, and so far who have you met in Luke's Gospel who are the humble? The humble are Zechariah and Elizabeth. The humble are Joseph and Mary. The humble are Simeon and Anna who came to give a word of assurance to Mary as she bore the, the Son of God and brought Him into this world. The humble will be vindicated and exalted. And so if the proud are to be brought low and the humble are to be exalted, what do you call that? We call that a reversal of the world that we know. Because in this world, it's the powerful who rule. The humble do not rule. The humble are trampled upon. We live in a world where the powerful get away with murder. We live in a world where the poor and the powerless get trampled. It's a reversal of Roman peace. It's a reversal of human peace and prosperity. It's a reversal of the ideas and the ideals of wellness and goodness. And so make straight the paths and the valley will be filled is what? It's a poetic way of saying make preparations for the most important visit. So I do not know who is the most important person who has ever stayed in your house overnight or for a holiday. Who is the most important person that has visited your life and my life. Would you consider the visit of Trump and Kim a wonderful visit to us? Maybe not. What John the Baptist is doing was saying to Israel, get ready for the final and permanent visitation of God to you and to the world. The God who has withdrawn His presence because Israel, you sin against God, the God who hasn't sent a prophet to speak to you for 460 years has now finally broken his silence and absence. He will come to visit you. So I've used this many times. My, my daughter, I think in primary one, primary two, she came back. I said, Daddy, the school uh, is very clean. So I said, which part of the school is clean? She said, many parts, all parts. The canteen is clean, our classroom is clean, even the, the field is clean because they, they send us out to pick the thing. And I said, why? Why is it so clean? They said, something the principal said that the, the Minister of Education is coming. When the Minister of Education visits, schools clean up. When the Minister of Health visits, hospitals clean up. When God visits your life and my life, you and me, better clean up. That's what John the Baptist was telling Israel. 
For years and years, you have lived in rebellion against God. Instead of worshipping the true and living God, you have chased after other idols. You have gone into exile, but you now get ready for the incomparable final visitation of God. Final and permanent visitation of God. Sorry, I'm missing a word there. And so get ready for this. I was hearing or reading somewhere, was it our founding prime minister, that when China was getting ready for the Olympics, they put together 400,000 or 40,000 flower pots to welcome people into a new era for Beijing, a new era for, for China. And to get 40,000 or 400,000 flower pots all growing at the same time, about the same height, not many countries can do that, my friends. We can't even do two pots, let alone 400,000 pots. And that's to welcome the whole world. I was in Nippador, if you've ever been there, the roads and the highways in the capital are so well done. But everywhere, from Yangon, the old capital, to everywhere, the roads are not so good. So as we travel down Nippador, I asked the taxi driver, um, um, are you expecting anyone? Because Nippador, the, the roads, the highways, they look so beautiful. It's a third world country, but has first world roads in the capital at least. And then he says, are you expecting anyone or anything? No one. We built this many years, sir, but no one coming. <laughs> when I heard that, all the money and all the effort, all the labour of putting out a wonderful road and infrastructure to welcome nobody. Isn't that amazing? What John the Baptist is saying is you better prepare a road and a highway for God's arrival. And the road or the highway you need to prepare is this. He goes on to say, He said, Therefore to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Has anybody called you a snake? You want to try calling the person to you a viper? You brood of vipers, that's not a good association. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And so the only preparation, the right preparation for the final visitation of the holy God to his people is the road of repentance. Get on the road of true repentance in your life to welcome the holy God to your life. Until you get on this highway of repentance in every area, which means doing a U-turn of your idolatrous life, you won't be ready when God comes to visit your life and my life. And so this is important, my friends. From Isaiah who first preached this to John the Baptist who finally preaches this, he's calling for this preparation. And so, for them, why does John the Baptist do not plead Abraham? There is nothing God hates. What do you think God hates? There is nothing God hates or detests more than... Can you fill it in for me? There is nothing God hates or detests more than dot, dot, dot. What do you think? There is nothing God hates and detests more, the answer has come out rightly, than nominal worship, than fake piety, than hypocrisy, than two-timing with God. And Israel's go-to Go to repentance is to plead. Abraham is our spiritual father and we are the spiritual children. Their default repentance is to preach, their, is to 
appeal to their racial pedigree, we are from Abraham, and their cheap repentance is their religious roots. And John the Baptist is saying, can you please see the wrongness of fake repentance? Can you see, please see the seriousness of false security? Which lead me to, you and me to ask, right? What is your go-to fake repentance? What is your instinctive default repentance? Instead of true repentance, what is your cheap behavioural, external behaviour with no change on the inside? God may want, as this year comes to an end, He may want your anger, which is destroying people all around you, in your marriage, in your family. God may want your ambition, which has left your wife behind and your children behind because you became an absentee father until this year that you were grounded and that you got reconnected because you got reconnected, forced by a virus. God wants your anger. God wants your ambition. You give Him your activity. Maybe even in church. God wants your malice. He wants your manipulation of life. You offer Him ministry. Could that be your go-to repentance? Go-to repentance is our self-effort. Go-to repentance really, really makes God upset. It grieves God. It angers God. So I ask of myself and ask of you, as the year comes to an end, the last 364, 65 days, what has been your go-to fake repentance? Your fake piety and my fake piety. And if we carry on with this and don't see the seriousness of it, John the Baptist says the axe is at the root. This kind of fake repentance, this kind of fake piety for Israel is coming to an end, which leads you to the heart of John the Baptist's message. There will be no newness of life for you. There will be no newness of life with you and God or your neighbour unless we confess our sinfulness of heart. Whatever you haven't soaked in up to this point, please soak this in. This is the gospel. There will be no newness of a new year unless we confess the sinfulness of our hearts. That's the point that John the Baptist was conveying to Israel. And so you ask, he's telling them, get on the road to repentance, true repentance. Guess what? There are now examples of true repentance in John the Baptist and his encounters with the crowd who are coming to him to be baptised. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptised and said to him, teacher, what about us? We are tax collectors. We collect money from our own fellow Jews and give it to the Roman conquerors. What about us? What shall we do? And John the Baptist said to them, collect no more. He didn't put a full stop there. He says, collect no more than you are authorised to do. And then the third group come up to him. Soldiers also ask him, and we, what shall we do? And John the Baptist said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. 
And so, three examples from Israel's life about one lesson. And one lesson is, your love for God, Israel, is expressed in, your love for God is expressed in, can you fill that in for me? In love for your neighbour. Your love for God is always expressed in love for neighbour. That was the heart, the gist of the Ten Commandments. For many years in Israel's life, love for neighbour turned out to be beggar thy neighbour. They would use unjust skills to do business with each other. They would charge interest against each other when God told them, you cannot charge interest against each other. Israel will fail to look after the widows. She will fail to look after the orphans. She will fail to look after the aliens and the foreigners. Did I tell you when I arrived in Japan years and years ago for my first visit? I'm sure you've seen it, right? You arrive there, you march up to the airport, uh, to the, the immigration counter, say, aliens. So I look at one of them, must be Ursula. <laughs> you fail to look after the aliens, you fail to look after the foreigners. But all this failure of the hearts, ethical, moral, spiritual failures, was very nicely covered up by their temple going, by their festivals, by the keeping of the letter of the law in their life. So what is this first group? What is this thing about the tunic? Whether it's the tunic to protect life from the cold, and someone doesn't have it, I've got two, two layers, someone doesn't have one, or food to feed. True repentance that John the Baptist is talking about is this. Don't offer each other what we call leftover generosity. Offer each other life-saving generosity. And who would show this in their life? Jesus will preach about the Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan to a Jew in need. The two people hate each other. The two people don't help each other. Jews should help fellow Jews. But Jesus told that parable to show that pious Jew after pious Jew after pious Jew, as they saw a helpless Jew, a helpless Jew who was robbed and beaten and left to die, did nothing about him. But a Samaritan who hated Jews, came along and helped him lock, stock and barrel. That is not fake piety. That is true piety. So don't offer each other leftover generosity. Offer each other life-saving generosity. And so, by God's grace, by God's grace, we've started to do this outreach Mission at our doorsteps to the guest workers. Through COVID-19, their needs were surfaced. Six, seven hundred thousand of them. By God's grace, we came to know and adopt Adam and brought them up to Hot Park and brought them to here to just share Christmas with them. And this is what somebody wrote. I'm so envious. Some, one of our members who's overseas wrote this when he heard that we'd gone out and seen the photos and seen different things that different people had sent or posted. I'm so envious that I'm not physically there to share in this ministry. I'm bursting with thanksgiving. I felt so proud of ARPC, and I'm just paraphrasing. And this person said, I shouldn't feel proud because of anything that church does because it's all by God's grace, but I felt proud. When I heard the news, I could feel my heart literally swell up. Who do you think wrote this email to me? Pastor John Ting in Sydney, Australia. 
my heart is bursting with joy to hear that ARPC hasn't forgotten the gospel. That they are living out the gospel again and again and again. And we're trying not to offer leftover generosity. And when we ask for, our, for 16 groups to come and help us with nine continuous days of reaching out, I was overwhelmed by the people who came. And some of you are seated here, and my heartfelt thanks to all of you. And we must carry on with that work by the grace of God. Amen. So if the first example is, of, is this, don't give leftover generosity, give true life-saving generosity. The second example of tax collectors, collect no more than you're authorised to do. He didn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. Isn't that strange? You would expect that John the Baptist, full of fire and brimstone, stop collecting taxes from your own people. You are traitors. You are running dogs. He didn't say that. He actually said, right, tells them, don't be greedy. Collect what you are allowed to collect and no more. Collect what you are allowed to collect and no more. He was telling his fellow countrymen, don't be like, don't be like pagans. The most insulting thing you could say to a, to a Chinese is, the most insulting thing you could say to a, an Indian is, the, more insult, the most insulting thing you could say to a Malay is, the most insulting thing to say to an American is, you, you look Canadian. The most insulting thing you can say to an Australian is, you sound like New Zealander. The most insulting thing you can say to a Jew is that you remind me of Gentiles. They were colonised. But they are supposed to live separate lives from their colonizers, they are Romans. The danger of Roman culture is this. What is the danger of Roman culture? How the Romans feasted, lying down and vomiting between courses because they were so rich as an empire, so rich as the number one civilization. And let me just read this, right, an article that I just got from, from CNN. That the Romans had a bizarre cultural habit, they don't sit well with modern etiquette. These practices helped keep the good times rolling. Giving banquets was a status symbol and lasted for hours deep into the night. And so, the ancient Romans were hedonists, pursuing life's pleasures to the max. So for them to enjoy a feast, an ending feast for hours late, from early evening late into the night, what would they do? It was customary to leave the table to vomit in a room close to the dining hall. And how do they do this? By using a feather to tickle the back of their throats to stimulate the urge to regurgitate. Then after they do, do this, right, they regurgitate, they vomit, they simply leave that hall and the slaves will clean up after their mess. All that was the sign that they had made it, that Roman peace had given them such prosperity to feast endlessly. And Jews living under Roman rule would have many insights to the excesses of life, to the excesses of idolaters, not to the ethics of worshippers. And so, what do we have? Repent of normalizing sin in our life. Repent of excessive living in our life. And maybe COVID-19 has come to us 
that we as a first world country here in Singapore, some of the excesses that we have indulged in may need confessing and need repenting that we have so much and yet not enough. And then comes the third example of repentance. The soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, but be content with your wages. And the lesson is, not simply give, not simply don't give leftover generosity, but you must do this. Repent of misusing your position. Repent of misusing your blessings, your favour. You are a soldier, you have a job, you have a, you have a salary, but don't use that to invoke the law for immorality. Don't use legality for immorality. That's what a lot of civil servants do around the world. That's what a lot of police forces do around the world. They use, they hide behind their uniform to abuse and beggar and pupper their people. But you mustn't do that. And you must learn to repent of discontentment in your life. So all those who are here, I can see your eyeballs. Right? Let me see whether you're contented or discontented. All those at home, let me stare at you now. Contented or discontented? With contentment, we fall into two extremes that we should avoid. We are too contented with fake, nominal spirituality. Too easily contented that this is all God wants. For me to turn up in service once a week. For me to read my Bible when I meet with my small group once a week. But the rest of the time, I don't need to listen to God's Word. The rest of the time, I don't need to listen to the Gospel. The rest of the time, God's speaking to me. That is not something I need in my life. The other extreme is we are never contented. Which one are you? Did you notice that two out of the three examples here who need to repent have to do with money? Which tells you money is a great barrier to true discipleship of Jesus. Never contented with earthly pleasures, never contented with early possessions, never contented with earthly positions. The summary is, all is not going well under the march of progress. Whether it's first century Rome or 21st century Singapore. And John the Baptist was telling first century, first century Rome, there are repercussions for this forget God and beggar your neighbour actions. You cannot paper it over, you cannot cover it over by pleading, my spiritual father is Abraham. You cannot cover it by activity. You cannot cover it by ministry. I serve in church. I have a role. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. None of those things are going to save you whenever you and me embark on nominal worship in our lives. Unless there's confession of sinfulness, there will be no newness of life with the true and living God. So that is the true unwellness that we all face. And how does it end? As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts. Questioning where? The heart is where it is. They were questioning their hearts concerning John. Who on earth does John think he is? And who on earth might he be speaking about? Whether he was the Christ, John answered them all saying, 
I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what lessons for us? After COVID-19, the number one question being asked is this. So what's the new normal? What's the new normal for school? What's the new normal for work? And in a few days' time, January 5th, we all go back to school. What's the new normal? And the number one question asked in Christian circles, what's the new normal for us? Did you notice as you read the Bible from the Old to the New Testament that God is not interested in changing structures? He's most interested in saving hearts. He didn't come to overthrow the Roman Empire. He came to overthrow Satan, who tempts you in your heart, who rules you in your heart, to rebel against God. And so we've got to be very careful that the new normal that we come out to is not simply a change of structures. In our zeal to figure out the new normal, we could be wrongly preoccupied with the change of structures. We waste so much time debating whether we should have online service or on-site service. We should spend more time sorting out whether we are on the right side with God. We spend so much time debating whether virtual or on-site communion. That is less important than working out whether I have a true communion with God in my heart, in my life, every moment, whether I'm on the phone by myself or I'm sitting in public with people. We spend so much time trying to sort out whether work from home or work at the office is more important. But God tells us working with all our heart and mind for the Lord Jesus is more important. That's very important to get right. So what is God accelerating? God is not accelerating structural change. The number one change He's accelerating around the world is heart change. And how will this heart change come about? This heart change will come about how you respond to Jesus. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, remember Herod? It began, we began with him, who had been reproved by Herodias, by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for the, all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked John the Baptist up. And so friends, whether it's going well or unwell with you, depends on whether you're going to shut God up and shut God out of your life. Herod was intent to shut God up by shutting John the Baptist up. How dare you point to the immorality of my life? Do you know who I am? And you will go from Herod shutting John the Baptist up to Pilate hanging Jesus on the cross. And in between Herod and Pilate will be the fake piety of the Jewish leaders and the fake piety of the Jewish nation. And only the faithful remnant, from Zechariah to Elizabeth to Joseph to Mary to Simeon to Anna, would remain faithful to the Lord. And so Jesus, He's going to be hated. He's going to be so hated by the world. But guess what? Now when all the people were baptized, when I mean, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, 
the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my son my beloved son with you I'm well pleased that is what we call a combination of two key passages it's Psalm 2 that tells of a Messiah who will come to rule the world on God's behalf is Isaiah 42 that speaks of the suffering servant. So Jesus, whatever you do not know about him, will be hated by the world, beginning with the hatred that John the Baptist, uh, that Herod would show towards John the Baptist, but he will go to the cross and finish his work of saving us from Satan and sin and death and God's wrath because he's the beloved son of God. And so, there will be no newness of life unless we confess our sinfulness of heart. But here is one. There will be no newness unless we humbly accept God's goodness to us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Not simply to confess our sinfulness, but to accept the goodness of God to save us and to forgive us by the gift of His Son, now so promised by John the Baptist. It would be tragic if we entered COVID-19, come out of COVID-19 next year or the year after, it would be tragic if you came into right, COVID-19, came out of COVID-19 and you had no greater worship of and love for Jesus. So as the year comes to an end, you have to ask your heart, yourself, you have to check your heart, and I have to check my heart. Is there a greater need for Jesus, a greater worship of Him, a greater love for Him? It would be disastrous, friends, if we came in and out with no greater worship of Jesus. And so it is unwell in our world. It could be, and it could be unwell because we suffer man-made sin against us. It could be unwell because we are now suffering the natural disasters of a fallen world sickness. However the unwellness comes, Jesus is the answer. So allow me to read the testimony of a youth. And the title of his testimony is Bullet All My Life. Bullet All My Life. In primary school, I was often teased and left out. I guess I was a late bloomer. So I was more clueless than most of the other kids. I found it really hard to make friends, would usually be lost in group settings. Other kids would find me strange and antisocial, exclude me from their circles. You, you have a son like this? You have a child like this? That led me to being alone often. So I had a low self-esteem of who I was and what I was worth. Then in secondary school, what happened to him in secondary school? In secondary school, things got more physical. I was smaller than most people when I entered secondary school and I had a very passive nature. So by secondary school, I was now physically pushed around and bullied by a few of the bigger kids, whether it was for money or just to push me around. I don't know. Then, I was an easy target. I didn't realize that all these names they were calling me, the words stuck in my head, even though I'd finished secondary school. By the time I got to junior college, I reached my lowest point. 
I was struggling with school, especially since I have dyslexia. My attendance rate in school was extremely low. I had no motivation to wake up each morning. I would often lock myself in my, to in my toilet to cry. I wouldn't be able to sleep due to the dark thoughts that shrouded my mind. I thought I was all alone in this fight with no one to love me. Then all of a sudden, I've, when my loved ones around me discovered that I was being bullied, they all came to support me. My family, my mentor, a close group of friends walked, me, walked with me through this journey. They're the ones who pulled me out of this pit. They le never left my sight, helped me with my studies, helped me with my faith, helped me simply to get through each day. They would sit with me as I studied. They worshipped with me during my free time when I felt down. They prayed with me, reminding me of who was really in control. Then when I was on my own, I began to realise the importance of the Bible. I filled my day with verses like Jeremiah 29. The song Sovereign by Michael Smith was a song I sang often. Of course, there were many days. I have absolutely no mood to do any of these things. But thankfully, step by step, God helped me through this. Now, even though I still do occasionally get made fun of, it doesn't affect me as much as it was in the past. That's because I'm a child of God. My confidence is in my identity in Christ helps me ground my mind, shut down the lies as they come. That is why the things that people say or think of me don't affect me as much as they did before. They don't paralyze, paralyze me for days on end. Looking forward, I know there are many obstacles to come. But if I stay close to Jesus and trust in Him, it will be all right. If I stay close to Jesus and trust in Him, it will be all right. Keep your mind on Him because He won't fail you. It will be tragic if we went in and out of this pandemic with no greater worship and trust and need of Jesus. I share this because in four or five days' time, all our children go back to school. I do not know what percentage of our children will be made to feel useless or stupid because in some way, on-site or online, they have been quietly bullied or ostracised. I share this to tell you that whether we suffer from man-made sin or natural disasters, it can be well with us. One of my sisters sent me a good quote. This is not a year to get everything you want. But this is a year to appreciate everything you have. Isn't that marvellous? So I want to ask, end by asking you, this year we have been deprived of many things. Maybe because God wants to ask you, I've given you so much and you don't appreciate all that I've given you. Why should I give you any more? Let me state that clearly as the year comes to an end. I've given you everything. 
by giving you Jesus. And if you don't appreciate Him, and you don't appreciate every blessing you have in Him, you don't appreciate His people, the church, there will be no newness of life for you. Because only Christ can bring newness of life. And so, do you appreciate what you have? We must end the year not simply appreciating Christ is too light a word. You don't walk around and say, I appreciate Christ. You can say, I appreciate another person. But we are to worship Christ. We are to adore is even too light a word. We are to worship Christ. Then you can appreciate and love His church. And then you are to pass on the gospel. Unless we do this, there'll be no newness of life. And so we're going to sing a song that captures this for us. A song that captures our theme that it is well. There'll be true newness if you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone.